Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm grateful for my friendships with former students. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm grateful for my friendships with former colleagues. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Deep Flux Pale Ale, a collaboration between Boulevard and Three Floyds Brewing Companies. So my wife is uh, my wife is hovering around here in the basement because she wants to get in on some of this beer action. It looks really appealing. She takes issue with that characterization. I'm going to be 100% honest. I saw Barley Wine Ale and the tiny little um, text perpendicular to the 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 label that says pale i my brain didn't even see it so uh this is typically a beer outside of my family of preference i haven't tried it yet but uh, meg just took a drink and the look on her face uh really changes how i'm expecting to experience this like wine and beer had a baby Barley wine. It is barley, barley wine, wine ale. Yeah. So it, yeah, if maybe that is the right characterization. What are we doing today, pal? Teacher preparation and professional development can pursue anti-racist decolonial practices by deconstructing our assumptions about effective practice. We read a study from pre-service teachers engaged in disrupting oppressive paradigms of teaching in a collaborative pursuit of more just practice. Later, we turn to an examination of the neuroscience underlying motivation. These authors claim a popular conception of self-determination with intrinsic and extrinsic motivations may overlook how our brains are actually wired. Let's get started. So let's get to it. For our first segment, we read Cultivating Epistemic Disobedience, Exploring the Possibilities of a Decolonial Practice-Based Teacher Education. This was written by Michael Dominguez, published in the Journal of Teacher Education, 2020. So I cued this paper because justice in education and educational practice is something that I think is important and it's something that we need to continue to revisit and um, re-examine regularly and consistently. And so when I saw um, Dr. Dominguez's paper come across my, my aggregator and particularly his discussion of epistemic disobedience, which fits in with um, some other epistemological conversations that we've had in the past, I felt that this was a really good opportunity to revisit a topic that we need to be revisiting. It's, it's, so, it's interesting. I really like this paper, which is not the same thing as saying I enjoyed reading it. I did not enjoy reading this paper that I liked so much. That's provocative. That's a provocative statement. I would argue that it's a provocative paper. Agreed. I think that I think that the author would as well. Uh, and I think that it was his goal. I think that that's uh, you know any it, it just 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 the title cultivating epistemic disobedience right disobedience as a as a as a construct is a a you know deviation of expectations. So if we're going to be disobeying, that means there has to be a set of expectations or instructions in the first place. And so he sort of lays out in the introduction, this uh, paradigm of practice-based teacher education. And so um, in a lot of 
in a lot of the, his story, he's talking about preparing pre-service teachers, folks who are going to go out and work within classrooms in the future. Um, but as I was thinking about this material, I also thought it had a lot of relevance to professional development and in-service type, um, type programming for teachers who are currently in the classroom. And so he sort of laid out this um, concept of preparing teachers means um, means training them and practicing these high leverage practices that he puts in quotes several times, which are, which are sort of the, the antagonist of his paper, I suppose. So, uh, yeah. So, um, I learned a new phrase, white gaze, which I'm sure is not a new phrase. It's new to me. Um, which is the idea that there is a, uh, a default audience member. And that audience member is, uh, white, privileged demographic um and so i think applying that concept to standards of education uh there are legacy practices in education in terms of teacher student interactions curricular decisions financing decisions um power dynamics in a classroom in a building in a community uh that have uh categorically and systemically continued to serve privileged demographics at the cost of uh, those that have been under un, yeah marginalized and um i think you know like i uh, he uses the term colonial colonialism colonial practices versus decolonial decolonializing practices and uh, i can't um i can't say that i'm really familiar or super i i don't want to say i'm uncomfortable but i'm not really super comfortable with that term, just because I'm not sure that I know all of the nuances about that, those issues. And so in my mind, I've kind of, I'm sure that they overlap with and are not exactly the same as what I imagine legacy practices to be. Uh, But that's sort of the villain overlap that I put into it, um, which I'm sure can be further informed as I am in fact a white privileged male. And uh, a piece of his description in all of this was um, these high leverage practices that were that are the legacy. Many of them are the legacy practices that you alluded to um, sort of have this implicit value of maintaining high expectations from a problematic paradigm. And so as we're talking about trying to serve um historically marginalized groups of people, um, we have this this intrusion of deficit thinking within that approach um, that, uh, that a teacher's job is to uplift um, BIPOC students and people. And that, that's, of course, racist and problematic and um, is colonial. That's a colonial attitude um, that this, the prescriptiveness of high impact practices that we just practice them and reproduce them with high fidelity comes from the paradigm of those practices are from a white gaze. And so is they are oppressing people and we should work to deconstruct those and then approach instruction from a decolonialized perspective, which is what his paper lays out. And one of the things that I loved about this paper, and there were a number of things I loved from the, from the standpoint of um, his author practices and the methods that he presented. And one of the things that I really appreciated from his description was he laid out this theoretical framework that a lot of the words I feel like that you and I have even said so far are um, fairly abstract. They're fairly, they're fairly high level philosophy of teacher preparation and teacher practice and he said we have to we have to raise this to the concrete is the phrase that he used a couple of times we have to 
put this into practice. We do have to practice the art of teaching. And so what does this look like when you actually do it in teacher preparation and when you actually do it in the classroom? And that's what I'm going to concern myself with in this paper. And so I really appreciated the um, the recognition of the utility of a practical approach. Like we, we have to do things to teach. So what are those things? And he got into that. One of the things that we've been discussing on this show for a little while now is the concept of humanizing instruction versus dehumanizing instruction. And what I found was that, I, you know, I colonial, decolonial, I need to learn more about those things before I'm comfortable with them. But I kind of uh, found the resonance with what he was suggesting that we should be doing consistent with what my understanding of humanizing pedagogy is. And so I found a lot of resonance in my journey to explore and foster that concept because he did say that there are practices that are dehumanizing when we, when we shut down voices and different perspectives and we don't open the space to acknowledge the human experiences that not just our students have, but honestly, we as teachers have had and that um, we have opportunities to foster the humanity of our students and our community and ourselves and our classroom, which um, can be subsumed by uh, legacy practices because, oh, I'm sorry, I got to prepare you for this test that we're going to take at the end of the year and we don't really have time for anything else. So we're going to, we're going to shelve our humanity and just spout some more academics. Uh, and that, that's, that's not good for people. Uh, there was a sentence that he wrote early on in the paper that I felt like encapsulated the problem in a really crystallized and clear and concise way. And so I'm going to quote him here and now uh, he says, and I quote, too often, eager young teachers thrust into constraining school settings without clear models of decolonializing practice and what it looks like to act and be humanizing and epistemically disobedient will unwarily be drawn into colonial obedience, end quote. And I thought that was powerful because the it marries the importance of understanding the idea of a decolonialized approach to education and the practice it and the practice of it um, and what it looks like to actually put it into our classrooms and rec doing it in a way that recognizes the humanity of our students and our own humanity and position as we do it. And when we don't do that, that there is no such thing as as non-human as non-colonial right there, there's no such thing as some sort of neutral version of it that um we we will slip into unintentionally or otherwise slip into these pedagogies of um obedience or you and i use the word compliance and i think that those um are intended to mean the same thing here and so um so what he does throughout a lot of this paper is he analyzes um i want to use the right word yeah it's teatro and so what he does through the bulk of this paper and what makes up his data is a qualitative description and analysis of a teatro, which is um, a process of rehearsal where these pre-service teachers um, participate in what you can think of as a role play, where they are working out how they would approach a, a, a tension or a moment or, uh, you know, a a scenario in a classroom where you have an opportunity to either be obedient, be colonial in your approach to return to servicing only what we would air quotes think of as that the academic goals or to recognize the humanity of the students and the urgency of deconstructing the colonial approach to education and, and persisting in that discomfort to 
to pursue a more just approach to education. And so he, he, he walks us through this, this example teatro uh, and the experiences of his students and how it shaped um, their participation in this moment. Uh, and this is where the paper became sort of a, a tougher read because it um, – in the, this scenario, there is a real emotionally complex societal issue that uh, uh, that they are exploring through literature or that is a part of the literature, which is essentially the phenomenon of date rape. And of course, that is a super complex emotional issue that people are going to respond to uh, – because it is natural for them to do so. And that means that if you're reading a piece of literature in your classrooms and there's something like this that comes up, there will be tension and your your response as a teacher and as a decision maker in in how – I guess your response to that tension will either be a submission to the dehumanizing colonial practice – or it will be counter to it, and you can't just neutrally acknowledge this without wrestling with that tension. And I can see myself. I can. I, I can even remember instances in my teaching career when I when I have made mistakes and when I when I have engaged in um, a pedagogy of obedience. Um, and so, so he 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 briefly gave a couple of examples of what that more colonial approach, what that that pedagogy of obedience would look like, and. Um, it can include if we've got this this uncomfortable topic that comes up, and you have the beginnings of some tension um, or some conflict between students, which they which they are enacting in this teatro. Um, it can be tempting, or I can see myself thinking about just silencing the conversation, saying this this is uncomfortable. This is going to a dangerous place. We're not going to have that conversation. We're talking about the text only, which which dehumanizes the experience, the lived experiences, and the emotional response of all the students who are participating in that conversation. And what it says is, you are expected to obey and understand this academic content as I tell you to understand it, and that's problematic. That's a colonial approach to to learning to learning about this literature and about these topics, and so we have to resist that. It also is dehumanizing because it says that your your emotional response to this is less important to whatever academic measure we are pursuing excellence on uh, sometime in the future. That yeah, I get it. I understand that this is a tough thing for some of you. So here's a you know here's a trigger warning that's going to come up in this book. But we're going to talk about some uh, some use of uh, uh, imagery and illusion later, and and some uh, alliteration, some techniques about that. So that's what we're going to focus on before we get into this. So you know uh, that's you know we got to make sure that we we don't lose track of what's important, which is are these literary techniques, uh, which is just dehumanizing, which. Right, which is if, if you're sitting there and you've experienced sexual violence or you were in your family, that's ludicrous. If you want to say what's the important thing, that that's so clearly traumatic and harmful. And so instead, this uh, this article and these these students in the in this paper and who are engaging this teatro are exploring and collaboratively testing what are approaches to learning in this situation that can be humanizing and that can disrupt the colonial approach to this topic um, because the paper emphasizes those methods do not currently exist. They're not out there in the toolbox. This is not about identifying the right high leverage practice and then reproducing it 
with fidelity across all of our classrooms. If that was going to work, this wouldn't be a problem. So we have to we have to co-construct a new approach that can disrupt that sort of an attitude. And so they were exploring different ways to think about that from a decolonial perspective, rather than teaching any individual practice that someone that that they're not exotic things that we're doing. They're not new things, you know, writing, but you probably have tried writing in your classroom before, but it's a new way to think about using that approach that centers the humanity of the people we're trying to help learn. So in these, in this specific teatro, the, uh, the teacher, everyone was played by a pre-service teacher. And these teachers had, it was, it was noted that for this particular uh, instruction experience, that these teachers had belonged to a cohort of teachers that had been working together for some time and building vulnerability within the cohort had been an explicit goal that has been fostered by their uh, lead instructor for a a bit of time before that they were at a place where they could do this kind of instruction. So this is not like, you know, we're going to try this tomorrow and throw people into a blender of emotional hellscape where they have to communicate their deepest vulnerabilities in front of each other in order to be able to, um, open up themselves to each other for, for possibilities for change. So this is not an out the gate, you know, you're not going to, this is not like Teatro and Think Pair Share are two different tiers of strategies here, people. So you're going to have to put a lot of groundwork in before you're going to be able to delve into this type of space. Um, so in this space, in this particular Teatro example, the uh, the teacher uh, was guiding them through this uh, passage that involved or discussed or re- referred to uh, what I took away as a date rape, though that, that phrase was never used in the paper. Um, and one of the students playing a male said, uh, well, there was a, something along the lines of there was a responsibility for the female to communicate that she was not amenable to the, to the event. And then another student had an emotional response um, uh, counter to that. In fact, very aggressive. Uh, that is wrong. And that idea is um, unacceptable. Yes, it was a very judgmental thing. And I think that... Um, in, in our instincts to want to empower disenfranchised voices, we would say that I'm going to leverage my strength as a teacher, the voice of my authority in the classroom, to highlight this particular voice and make it safe for that person to speak in the classroom. But in doing so, we shut out other voices, which is colonialism. And so there has to be a more subtle nuanced approach to empowering voice in the classroom to understand that our lived experiences are vastly different and how we understand these narratives are vastly different. Uh, And only through those kinds of exchanges can we improve our understanding of each other in a humanizing fashion. And that is a complicated thing to do. So when they, they, analyze the scenario they did so with how in a classroom do we empower and acknowledge the voices of each other in a way that doesn't silence someone because of some pre pre-identified demographic quality like well you're male so your perspective on this isn't valid is as colonial as systemic oppression of female voices you mentioned the investment that the the instructor and author and the students had in um, building confianza 
amongst themselves to be able to be vulnerable and honest uh, about these um, really, really these these sensitive topics, these topics that evoke strong emotional reactions and connect with powerful and, and traumatic lived experiences for for the participants. And that really needs to not be overlooked. It's it can be tempting. We accept the, the importance of these conversations, the urgency of addressing misogyny in in literature and in our communities. And so it can be tempting to want to jump in like we'll do we'll do a teatro on Monday. But we have to recognize that teaching trauma is not the same thing as trauma informed instruction. And so the author did a really good job of emphasizing in the methods and in the setup um, the investment that the group had made in the confianza uh, to be able to have this teatro interaction where they're all active participants, but are safe in the conversation. And we really need to make sure that uh, we all understand that you've got to invest to get to this moment to be able to safely have these conversations um, in our classrooms and with our cohorts. And uh, what you recognize, one of the things that stood out to me in the, in the transcript that I am certain is derived from the practice and the confianza that they have is um, the, the student who was the protagonist in this scenario, uh, the, the, the teacher who was overseeing the simulated disagreement or the simulated conflict between students. Um, if you read the transcript, she says in early on, hold on, I'm going to pause this, not pausing the, the teatro as to indicate that she's talking to the simulated students. This is what she would say in her classroom. And then a few lines later, she says, OK, I am pausing the teatro. And she and then she goes on to narrate her own internal and emotional experience. And that was powerful to me because it's a really strong example it's a really strong example of the ongoing importance of obtaining consent to participate in these conversations. She felt empowered and they had all practiced the procedure of re of reobtaining consent to participate in this space. And she felt in control and agency to continue the simulation and then to pause the simulation while not disengaging with the conversation. And that was a really powerful example I felt of how we build this environment to have these sensitive conversations. Um, and that takes time. That, that's something you, you can't do it in day one. You shouldn't do it in day one. You're going you're gonna to harm students further. And so I thought it was a good model of the practice that the author spoke to early in the paper as being important. We got to talk about the practice of this. We got to rise to the concrete. And so there's an example in this narrative of what that looks like within this rehearsal approach. Once they had kind of worked through this, the participating teachers did some brainstorming about, well, how do we give students this this space and how do we empower this in a way for them to communicate what they're going through and then have a choice to control their voices? And they, they kind of brainstormed, well, writing is a, is a decent way to process these emotions and we're just having this really complex emotional space right now where – students are having a difficult time communicating with each other and even organizing their own internal thoughts. So let's give them some writing time. Uh, but then that, well, what, what are the stakes with writing? If the, if they're, if I'm going to have to turn this into a teacher, I'm going to write something differently than if I don't have to turn it in. If I have to read it out loud, I'm going to write something differently than if I don't have to read it out loud. And we still want them to have an authentic expression of an opportunity to, to, um, uh, uh, process what they're actually going for. And so they, I, they found a solution through this dialogue where they're kind of editing, revising, and improving each other's ideas about how, how do we give students the time to, ex to process and express, where they had the students write, give them some amount of time to process and write, and then the students themselves controlled how much of that 
and to what degree they are going to share it. So you, we're, we're all going to do some writing so that we can help get our emotions and understand our feelings and our perspectives out there on paper uh, because, you know, our brain's got to make some decisions when we, when we put it to paper. Uh, but then if you want to share one word or one phrase or one main idea or if you want to read the whole thing or if you want to read none of it at all, that you have the right to judge how how much you want to share of your voice in this room. And so that achieved all of those goals. It put the agency of the voice and the space to use it in the hands of the students while acknowledging that everyone here has something to say and feel about this particular topic. And so this is a moment where I want to, I want to think about shoulds. I want to think about what do we do with this? Because um, echoing again the author's um, the author's assertion that these are not high leverage practices to be re- reproduced. Quick writing is not an exotic new teaching technique. It's very likely that many of you or perhaps all of you have done this before. But the rehearsal approach centering the decolonial perspective on education takes practice because this is a complicated scenario. It's emotional and it was present in the in the in the protagonist, the teacher, just as much as with the students in this group. And so they, they process the scenario together for an extended period of time. Whereas with your students in your classroom at that moment, it's going to be very hard to pause everybody while we process our emotional reaction, the complexities of the scenario. And so the rehearsal piece is about giving it intentional thought and process and intentionality for what we're doing and how we're doing it ahead of time. Because in that moment, there's a lot going on and everybody's waiting for you, the instructor to indicate how we're going to proceed. And so I don't think even this group suggests that they solved this particular problem in their discussion. They're brainstorming some ideas and some techniques that they might use. But when this situation manifests in their classroom, it's going to be different in some ways than this practice scenario, but it's going to equip them to do better than default to the obedient pedagogies that might otherwise be our first reaction to the scenario. And so I think the should You have to mentally decide, I'm going to center the humanity of the students. I'm going to persist in the tension of the moment so that we can try to pursue a decolonial goal for that conversation that meets the urgency of addressing misogyny broadly in society because there is an urgency and we do need to do that. And we also need to do it in a way that does not silence the voices in the classroom and recognizes the unique lived experience of every student so we can have a dialogue and find a way to move forward together. And all of those things are complicated. And so this rehearsal is an example of we have to prepare ourselves ahead of time. We have to interrogate our own inclinations and practices so we can be equipped to do something better in the moment in our classroom. Because if we do not the first inclination is going to slip back, albeit perhaps unintentionally, into a colonialized approach that demands compliance or obedience from students. And that is going to propagate the same marginalization of students that has that has been around for as long as it's been around. Yeah, this paper was tough for me to consume. I got halfway through it and uh, I just stopped taking notes and I persisted and stopped taking notes for the rest of the day i couldn't i just couldn't do my normal uh digesting of the material um and 
even in when I was reading the subsequent paper, scenarios about how would I deal with situations like this in my classroom kept popping up in my head. So like this paper has is stuck. Like I mean, I've only, I read it this morning, so it's not like it's not like I have a whole long long uh, uh, measurement of time to compare it. But it's sticking with me right now, and I imagine I'm going to be in moments in the future where the the situation in the classroom is tense, and I'm going to think about this paper, and I'm going to say I don't need to run away from this. You know, like let's open my eyes and see what's here and see what we can do about empowering some voices in my classroom and recognizing and respecting the humanity of my students. And uh, this, this paper is going to come up at those times. And I want to think about that. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read Cognitive Neuroscience Perspectives on Motivation and Learning, Revisiting Self-Determination Theory. This was written by Ella Luria, Maya Shalom, and Daniel Levy, published in Mind, Brain, and Education. So I want to start by saying thank you to Dr. Levy for uh, giving us a copy of the paper to be able to read and consider. Thank you for that. I think you and I, we access this differently. I, I feel like you have some stronger opinions and stronger critiques. I really do. And I, I, even I don't know what I think about this paper. I mean, I, I do. I have notes, but uh, I cued this paper because I am into self-determination theory. I must acknowledge my position and I'm certain my bias. Uh, I have, I have published papers that reference self-determination theory. I have more papers in preparation that use it. I am way into self-determination theory. I really like it. Yeah, I'm pretty into it too. Like I'm a big fan of self-determination theory. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm about it too, but I think I might be a little less defensive about it than you are. And what's funny, you said mastery because this paper even does reference mastery goal structures also, which I we are both into as well. And so, uh, you know, longtime listeners will know I don't read the papers ahead of time. I only read the abstract. And the first half of the abstract like hits so many of my high points of the things I believe in and the things that I care about. And then the second half pivots to things that I disagree with. And I'm like, oh, that's not at all what I would do with that. And I don't think the evidence supports that at all. And so I had this like bizarre experience of like running hot and cold water over my hands at the same time. And I was like, I, I should read this. I should read this because I think I disagree with it, even though it's about things I care about. And so to counteract my own confirmation bias, I must read this paper. And so I cued it and now we're going to talk about it. So uh, this paper has a nice, thick biology section. If you are into brain anatomy, this paper has a really good, uh, comprehensive, uh, but yet accessible uh, discussion of brain structures and uh, memory function in humans. And uh, it was uh, I don't think it's necessary. Which is something else that we love. We're yeah. biology teachers. We love that. Yeah, we really do. So I really appreciate that part of this paper. Uh, and uh, I want to get to the the uh, crux of it, sort of the conflict right, right away. Not really. It's not even a conflict. Honestly, I don't think there's that much of a conflict. Uh, but the the crux of the issue is that they're saying our brains don't know the difference 
between rewarding an intrinsic motivation versus an extrinsic motivation. Our brains just know rewards and mechanistically it rewards both of those things the same way. So uh, we maybe need to reevaluate the importance of intrinsic versus um, uh, ex- intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Maybe we need to reevaluate that. I think is is half of the paper. And so I think we start with uh, these folks are looking really closely at how the brain works. Like, how do the structures in our brain consolidate memories? How do they retrieve memories? How do we process the stimuli coming in from the environment? We're thinking a lot about the like biophysiology of cognition and memory, which is awesome. Like, I, I love that topic. And so what they were looking at was self-determination theory really puts a big emphasis on the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So I am doing something because I am internally passionate or interested or curious about this thing versus I am doing this thing because something out in the world is forcing me to or is incentivizing me to. I'm doing this because I want that carrot over there. I'm doing this to avoid this stick over here. And so there's a big distinction in self-determination theory between motivated from inside me and motivated from outside me. And in education, being motivated from inside me is so much more powerful for sustaining learning long-term, sustaining meaningful learning, sustaining flexible learning, and being something that can motivate a lifelong learner compared to extrinsic motivation that can undermine that sort of intrinsic, that internal passion. And I will do something to get my marshmallow as long as there's a marshmallow, but that's what I care about. And I'm not actually invested in understanding the thing that gets me there. And I will stop doing anything else as soon as the marshmallows disappear. That's a, that is broadly how they characterize self-determination theory. And honestly, I don't have very many quarrels with any of that. That's yeah, they, they generally get it as far as I'm concerned. And so the question that they ask is when we look at brain structures, I don't see anywhere in the brain that has separate pipelines for internal motivations and external motivations. Our brains don't seem to care about the difference between those two things. And if that's true, do we need to reconsider using self-determination theory because perhaps extrinsic motivators are getting uh, undercredited with their usefulness? That was sort of how I operationalized a lot of their argument. Uh, well, I think that that's now, yeah, I think that that's fair, but I only really think that that was sort of like a like a like a posit, like half of the thing. I think the actionable information was about um, the effects of uh, punishment avoidant goals versus uh, reward goals. Be those goals either intrinsic or extrinsic. Because in terms of actionability, uh, we can continue to have a um, sort of a, a academic a discussion about the significance of the difference between intrinsic or extrinsic rewards. Rewards, but when we look at d- d- no matter where you fall on the self-deterministic theory perspective, uh, the punishment reward goals has a consistent consequence. Yeah, punishments are terrible. Like that, there's not really any disagreement about any of that. Uh, and they, they're pretty clear about that. And they propose some new vocabulary and uh, really lay out theoretically punishments as motivators are awful. And I don't, that doesn't surprise me. Like I, so far so good. Uh, I really spent like 80% of my time reading this paper agreeing with them. And that was a piece right. of it was, yeah, 
punishment as motivator is bad news. And so, you know, as a practitioner and I'm looking at shoulds, I'm like, okay, there's some further areas of research to discuss the nuances of motivation. Fine. However, in my classroom, I should not threaten my kids with negative consequences in order to get them to achieve things or know things or learn things. I should not do that. And I think when we think about punishments, we might not be doing the, the like critical analysis of our grading practices in that because we can think about punishments in terms of like uh, privileges, behavior consequences, experiences in the classroom. But a lot of the punishment perception in, in, in a student's life is has to do with grades. Do we start with nothing? Like your score is a zero right now and you will earn grades um, based on what you achieve. Or do they uh, start with a 100 and then their actions get get points docked from their score? Well, I, you lost points from doing this and you lost points from doing this and you lost points from doing this. In which, I mean, those two things sound like, oh, well, those are just, just different approaches to a rubric or different approaches to grading. But the fact of the matter is biologically – Right. The student says, I am punished because I didn't put this period here, or I am punished because I didn't put that thing there, or I'm punished because I did say this, or I did use that phrase. So they they lost points as opposed to earned them. Uh, I have recently, uh, in my nine-year career, so maybe for the past three years, fantasized about having everyone's grade in the grade book a failing zero at the beginning of the semester. And then adding to that as we achieve mastery on topics so that, you know, by the students who are who are with it have like a 60% at the midterm, which is still technically a failing grade. Or maybe it's a D, I don't know, depending on your system. But like they are on track for earning an A by the end of the semester having mastered these topics, which are the goals of this course. Uh, and you build up as opposed to the – we've done one assignment. And you you lost some points on that assignment, so you've got a ninety-five. Let's hope you can not keep. Let's hope you your your point loss or average is no more than that for the rest of the semester. Um, and, and that's two different ways to approach grading. It's funny you mentioned that, Woodrow, because that that's exactly the life I lived for as long as I was teaching at KU. Um, that is actually like mostly unintentionally. I'm ashamed to say it. I repeatedly say do things with intention and i this was just how it worked out um that's exactly what i did at ku well we started with a zero points this is how many points you need to earn this grade get there um and that's basically what i did and especially at the university level i didn't have anybody look over my shoulder to question that so that was always just how it was so i was 100 percent in that place compared to in my um k-12 classroom which i taught collegiate level biology in that classroom for almost every year i was there so i've got a pretty decent comparison and there are pros and cons to both um there the uncertainty of understanding your progress, especially for students who are unfamiliar with that kind of a system. I had to navigate students who say, yeah, I'm at 58 points out of 100. That's still an F. I don't know how many points I would usually have right now. I don't know what's typical. I don't know what's on pace. Even if I say 
you've earned a 100% on everything we've done. You're on pace for a perfect score. Okay. But this is unfamiliar. And so they're, they're reasonably and rationally cautious to, to accept that. And so there are pluses and minuses to that kind of an approach of, I want to recognize and honor your contributions and what you have demonstrated, but I also don't want you to be doing what you're doing in pursuit of the point, as opposed to in pursuit of excellence or competence. And that's a, it's a, it's a balancing act. And I'm not even suggesting that I've balanced that successfully every time, but I can just say I've lived that world and I, I definitely experienced some, it wasn't even pushback. It was just genuine confusion or uh, struggles with orientation of, I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know if 58 doesn't mean anything to me. So I need to make sense of this. So I, that's not even related to the paper. That's just a response to your comment. But Okay. Well, okay. From a practitioner's perspective, the shirt is don't punish your students to try to get them to do stuff. See, that's the thing, man. I The difference is, should you give your students marshmallows? Like, that's really the question, because their argument is you can get learning by giving them marshmallows. Maybe. Their argument is maybe. Well, even if you're doing intrinsic learning, unless you're in an environment that actually lets you go gradeless, you're giving them marshmallows. It's almost moot. What we like, we were trying to, like, pretend that when you get when you get 90 points, you don't you don't get a marshmallow, but yeah, you do. You get a marshmallow at the end of 90 points. That's what you do. We start with zero points. We're going to get 90, and then you'll get a marshmallow. Do-do-do-do. That's the achievement. That's the banner. It gets emailed to you. Right. That's the thing you get. And so we can try to hide the marshmallows or pretend that there aren't marshmallows or make it like make them invisible or, or make those marshmallows fist bumps, high fives, or positive feedback. We can We can do all of those things. But until we can live in a system where the student's experience at the end is the same as it is at the beginning, we're giving them marshmallows. Make better mistakes. How is the beer? Okay, so I have a hist. No, no. I don't even know how to say this. Let's do it as honestly as possible. I perceive that I hate pale ales. I have that perception. I have that belief about myself that I hate pale ales. But guess what? I love this. I love this. I love this. Um, This is the first pale ale that I say that I love. And that means that maybe I don't hate pale ales. Maybe there's some quality common of pale ales that I that I find distasteful, but this is not it. First of all, the alcohol, high alcohol content, 14.3, super sweet. Barley wine, I guess that's super sweet too. It's got a sour to it as well, which I, I didn't expect when I first tasted it. Well, maybe the sour is um, combating or... Or, or nullifying some of the excessive hoppiness that is normally traditional of pale ales. But the um, the very sweet notes of the high alcohol content and the you know the berry wine characters, um, I didn't I didn't I didn't get any of the hoppiness. And then the sour lingerings. So it's basically like um, a blueberry with a very sour finish, like a blueberry sour ball is what it feels like to drink this beer. Thanks for tuning in once again. 
We hope you enjoyed your winter break and uh, good luck with your spring semester. Remember that we want to read the things that matter to you. So let us know what topics interest you or what papers you want us to check out. Otherwise, we will see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.